if, if we get it, sure, let me know. Um, there are some people here this morning saying that I, I haven't had the chance to, to meet before, so after the service I'll do what I do most weeks when I preach, and that is go out to the um, door there. Um, please introduce yourself. Don't just slip on by. Um, take that opportunity to, to let me know who you are and, and let me get to know you better. Matthew chapter 26, um, you'll have it there, I hope. Uh, if not, I'd encourage you to turn it up. Page 997, if you're using the Bible there in the pew. I think I have that power. Great. Let's pray together. Father God, as we come to these passages which tell us about the very last hours of Jesus' life, uh, there's a sense that that we're focusing in on something very, very important and very, very dear to us. Uh, We pray that you'd help us to see this all. Uh, By your Spirit, come and make your word live for us today. Uh, Show us what Jesus' words and deeds, what his choices uh, teach us about you and and what they have to say about us. Lord, show us these things uh, and help us to live in the light of them. Amen. So they've moved from an upstairs room in Jerusalem, a a stuffy room, I'm imagining, heavy with the the scent of roasted lamb, of of bitter herbs, of sweaty bodies. So Jesus and his 11 disciples have left that room and they've headed out into a, a garden Uh, on the outskirts of Jerusalem, a garden called Gethsemane. Spring is in full bloom. So as they're out there on that evening, the night air is fragrant with the the blossoms, uh, and they lay back under the stars in this peaceful setting away from the city. And the disciples do what I would do if I was there with them. They fall asleep. Now, it seems to me that the whole point of Jesus coming away into this garden with his disciples is is to have some solitude. Uh, And that's something that had always been important to Jesus. Uh, What he's doing here on this evening is just a continuation of what he'd always done throughout his ministry. So before Jesus even began his public ministry, what does he do? Goes for 40 days into the desert to be alone with God. Whenever he hears of the death of his dear friend, John the Baptist... He goes for a time of solitude. Just before he comes to choose his 12 disciples, we we learn that he spends time alone with God in prayer. After he's healed a leper, before he sends out his disciples on a missions trip, Jesus takes time to be alone with God. And now, now that he knows the end is near, he does this thing that comes so naturally to him. He withdraws to be alone with God. This time it's a little bit different because normally when Jesus goes into solitude, he goes on his own. But this time he he seems to want a, a balance of solitude, that quiet moment with God. But he wants his friends with him. He leaves eight of them. Uh, soon after they arrive in the garden, he brings the three that are closest to him a little further into the garden, and he asks them 
to wait for him while he prays. Jesus wants solitude with God, but he needs the, he, he seems to have a, a need of company in this moment. I think we see here a moment where the humanity of Jesus just is clear before us. Something that we don't always take very seriously or don't always see very well. Jesus was very much like us in many ways. So here we have him, like us, facing what he knows to lie ahead and knowing that in that moment he needs the company of his friends. It's like when we're at a hospital bedside. Somebody's facing the worst and they want the company of those that they love around them. It's like when somebody's facing their last days of all We'll want our our friends and our family to gather at a time like that. In any moment of crisis, it's the most natural thing in the world to want the company of the ones that we love around us. And I think when we're with Jesus here in the Garden of Gethsemane, there's a little of that going on. Jesus wants his friends with him. He wants to be with his Father, and he wants to be with his disciples. Jesus wants his disciples with him, and he doesn't hide his sense of disappointment with them for how they get on with that invitation of his. They're drowsy after dinner and after wine, and they just can't keep their eyes open. Jesus notices their good intentions, but he also notices their their intense frailty. Look at verse 41. The spirit is willing, he says, of the disciples when they've fallen asleep but the flesh is weak. It's one of those phrases, you'll recognize it, even if you don't know this passage particularly well. We have adopted it quite easily into our casual evangelical speak. I think, as I think about it, that we probably use it most of all to excuse our laxity. I was given a fresh perspective on this verse and what Jesus might have meant when I read this passage in the message translation. Peterson has Jesus saying, there's a part of you that's eager, ready for anything in God, but there's another part that's lazy as an old dog sleeping by a fire. I couldn't help but see myself in in that, that very vivid rendering eager to live for God, but too lazy to, to actually to do it. Let's think for a moment about this solitude that Jesus is craving on the last night before his death. His disciples don't seem to, to value the importance of what's going on. They, they take it as an opportunity to, to catch up on their sleep. But Jesus saw this as crucial. This is how he chose to spend his final hours. And anyone who's serious about the life of Christian discipleship will want to learn from Jesus about time alone with God. John Ortberg says that solitude is the one place where we can gain freedom from the forces of society that will otherwise relentlessly mold us. The older spiritual writers, some of them talked about solitude as the furnace 
of transformation. Dallas Willard spoke about this Gethsemane moment and he said, it's solitude and solitude alone that opens the possibility of a radical relationship to God that can withstand all external events up to and beyond death. Folks, if we take seriously the example of Jesus and the writings of our wisest spiritual writers through the centuries, we'll begin to appreciate that solitude is fundamental for Christian maturity. Solitude is one of the key channels of God's grace into our lives. Whenever we begin to practice solitude, when we begin to to receive God's grace in this way, we'll begin to realize something very powerful about this verse here, that the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. We'll begin to realize that that is not a statement of inevitability. Jesus spoke about his disciples. He said that their spirit was willing, their flesh was weak, and that was true in that moment. But think about it. Eventually, as these guys learned to receive God's grace into their lives, they, were, they became men whose spirits were willing and their flesh was strong. Men whom God used to change the world. You, you know that story in Acts of the early church. Folks, our weakness is a condition that God wants to correct as well. And one of the ways in which he will do that is as we present ourselves before him. As we take time to get away from the rush and the busyness. As we declare to him that being with him is important enough for us to sacrifice other things. Then he'll meet with us and strengthen us. So I ask you this morning, what steps are you taking to make sure that you have extended periods of time alone with God. If you don't know much about this this crucial area of Christian discipleship, I'd encourage you this morning to commit yourself to finding out a little bit about it. If you're looking for a simple starting point, uh, reach for Richard Foster's book, Celebration of Discipline, and read the chapter in it about solitude. It'll take you 40 minutes to do that. And you'll find there an explanation and an invitation into something that was central in the life of Jesus. Maybe you're parents of young children. Maybe you're working long hours and you're trying to juggle those kinds of pressures in your life. And there's no time to do what you're trying to do at the moment. And you're thinking, Christoph, what planet are you on? Talking about solitude in a life like I live. Probably we need to be a little bit creative in how we use our time to allow these things to happen. So a married couple, for example, can take turns to free each other up for a time of solitude. Maybe, maybe we say that there's a couple of hours each week that one of us is going to do this. This week it's your turn, next week it's my turn. And we, we work it out. Maybe I could point you to a very simple place to start, a provision that we are making for you to do what we're talking about here today. 
On your way in this morning, you received a copy of our new parish newsletter. Um, You'll notice as you look at it, feel free to do that now, that there's a section in there called Soul Space. Talks about a period of time uh, in the run-up to Easter where we're going to have the church building here open for just this purpose. That people can come, break all their normal routines, come and be in a place where nothing else will be going on other than people opening their hearts and their souls to God. There'll be no agenda, no minister at the front preaching all over you, just a a space for you to meet with God. Maybe that would be a good place to start. Check those dates in your diary, see if one or two of those slots would suit you, and book it in. Make whatever arrangement.